Sorry, peace. We praise God for the choir and for that uh, wonderful uh, two selections and leading our hearts to worship. I praise God for each of you who's here this morning, who's come to worship the one true and living God. And I pray and have been praying this week that he would impact you. And, and we know that today is a, a kind of the, the day after uh, Louisville's big holiday, uh, the Derby season. And uh, the Derby season's parties and things of that sort, unfortunately, probably have, has gotten many Christians today uh, to have some, some, type of, uh, some type of hangover, right? Uh, but we want to we push through that. And we want to remember that we're here to worship God. And we want to remember that our bet is on Jesus. And I'm not betting on a horse that's going to run for two minutes and that's going to give me a temporary thrill. But my bet is on that horse in Revelation chapter 19 that is one day going to come through the sky with Jesus on him, with the people of God behind him, and with the angels in glory saying hallelujah to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's who my bet is on, amen? And that's who my heart has come to worship. Because one day, festivals and activities will seem so small in the presence of a God so big. So I pray that that's who you've come to worship. And I'm glad that you've come to worship that God with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for allowing us to be in your house to worship you and to submit our hearts to your word. Lord, we need you. We don't need religion. We don't need fad. We don't need our own thoughts. We don't need our own ways. We need you. We need your Holy Spirit to break through. We need you to speak to us. We need you to revive us. We need you to send us into this world as your missionaries and as your people. We need you to break through our fear, break through our timidity. I need you, Father God, to break through me and allow me to hide behind your cross and to see Jesus and to speak of Jesus in a glorious way. We need your Holy Spirit to, to, to allow us to submit to him this morning. We need him to guide us. We need him, Father God, to break us. We need him to make us. We need him to mold us, Lord. We need new eyes, Lord, a fresh perspective, Father God, a, a fresh wind of the Spirit, Father. We need a prophetic and a profound word for our everyday lives, Father God. We need you, Lord. We don't need your silhouette. We need you, Jesus. We need the one who was born in Bethlehem and who lived in Nazareth and who reigns in heaven. We need the one who is both a lion and a lamb, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. We need the great I am. We need you to speak, Father God, from your word as you spoke to Moses from a burning bush. We need you, God. Holy Spirit, we thirst for you like a deer in a dry, thirsty wilderness, Lord. Allow our souls to long for you. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Christians gone wild. That's what one pastor named his series on 1 Corinthians. And we, uh, last year, got to see why he named that series Christians gone wild. Because the Christians in Corinth had lost focus on what mattered most. Paul is writing the book of Corinthians to a church that he started some three to five years ago. 
And he is writing them as a loving grandparent would write to his grandchild. He's writing them with a heart that says, I, I need you to focus, I need you to return to what is most important. Now, we stopped that series at the end of December in order to uh, celebrate uh, Christmas and in order uh, to begin to paint vision on who we are as a church and where God wants us to be. For the last five months, we studied and, and looked at how God has called each of us to be flourishing members of a local church, to be accountable to one another, and to be faithful and committed to what God has called us to and the mission that he's called us to here in Newburgh. And not only that, we, we studied about what it means to be a, a Christian who lives life with other Christians to be in community with each other and how true community, when we experience it, it transforms us from the inside out and it sends us into mission. Well, now we're going to go back to the book of Corinthians and we're going to dig into this book and, and, and we have some, some things to be excited about as we study this book. In the upcoming weeks, we're going to hear sermons on a, a number of different subjects. We're going to talk about sexuality. We're going to talk about singleness. We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about what it looks like as a Christian to, to, to lay down one's light, uh, rights and to serve others. We're going to talk about the resurrection of our Jesus, the resurrection of our Lord. And we're going to look at these things in order so that we as a church would be transformed from the inside out, in order that we would be on mission in this world. Now, Paul, as he writes this book, he is really trying to get one major point through, and that's this. It's the cross of Jesus transforms the way we think and live. And he is writing this church to remind them that they have lost focus on what matters most, and that is the cross. The cross, he says, is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. The cross, Paul says, is what I came preaching. He said, I didn't come with words of eloquence. I didn't come to put a, a show on. I came to exalt a crucified Savior and to teach you how to live through him. So this whole book, what Paul is trying to do after 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is he's trying to show the church of Corinth how the cross changes the way they think and live. He's trying to show them that they have Instead of listening and looking to the cross of Jesus, they have begun to live worldly lives. And it's so easy for the church to move from focusing on the cross to worldly living. Instead of running to what Jesus has to say in his word, they ran to worldly philosophies. And they begin to think as the world thinks. And they begin to move as the world moves. And Paul is writing to the church of Corinth and he's saying, stop, hold up. Jesus has saved you. You have been saved to look differently and to think differently. And what you need to look to is his cross, to his life, death, burial, and resurrection. You need to look to his way because they had lost the way. Instead of to look into Jesus and, and seeing one who was humble and seeing one who has come to serve, the church was looking to themselves. They were a spiritually gifted church. And instead of looking to Jesus and saying, thank you, Jesus, for the gifts that you've given us, they begin to compete with one another. They had comparinitis. They had a disease where they constantly compared themselves to each other, which isn't the way the cross causes us to think. 
Not only that, they became big Twitter fans as they began to say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow this leader. Instead of following Jesus and saying, God has given us these men to serve the church, these pastors to serve the church, they became divided and began to take teams. And Paul is saying, that's not, that's not the message of the cross. It's not one of division. It's one of unity. It's one of purpose. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4, Paul talks to him and he says, listen, you guys are, you're the church. You are built on a sure foundation. You're built on Jesus. But yet, you all are walking around as if you're kings, as if you're, you're gods, as if you've already apprehended. So he is writing this church who has lost sight of the cross because of worldliness and who has become lifted up in pride. And his goal as a loving grandfather who planted and started this church is to deflate their plot pride. It's to expose where they've been missing the mark and to point them to a loving Savior, to point them to Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul gets on a church because here they are, they're walking around in pride, and they're walking around as if they had already apprehended, and they're at that, that highest level of serving Jesus. And he says, here it is, you all are living in pride, but while you're living in pride, there is a brother among you who is living in open sin, and you have nothing to say to him. You all are going about your everyday lives and talking about the issue without confronting him. Paul is saying, that's worldliness. That's not the message of the cross. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 through 8, we see Paul challenging the church at Corinth. He's challenging them on another subject in order to get them to view things from Jesus' perspective and not from a human perspective. If you could stand to the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. We want to see Christianity from Jesus' perspective not from our culture's perspective and what we've made it to be. And that's why we gather on Sundays. That's why we come to church. That's why we worship together. To see what the Bible says the Christian life looks like, not what we've built in our own lives, and not what's often popular. So I pray that you hear me speak to you this morning as a, as a loving father, a spiritual, loving Father. As I seek to point you to the cross of Jesus. It's the word of God that we hold in our hands. Let us marvel at it. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute? between the brothers, but brother goes to law 
against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Lord, we bless you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So Paul, again, is challenging the church. He's saying, you guys have been thinking and living in worldliness, not according to the standard of Jesus and the cross. And here he is speaking to the worldliness of the church by pointing out that they are handling disputes the wrong way. And he is writing the church and he's saying, let's set the record straight. This is how Christians handle disputes. This is how Christians handle drama. In Corinth, it was said around, among the Corinthians and among those in, in Athens that every citizen was a lawyer. It was a very argumentative culture. In fact, the court system was, was a big money-making system. People would take others to court without thinking about it, and judges would often uh, give, uh, 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 allow people's cases to be swayed by money, and they would be bribed in order to get money out of one person for another person. And Paul is looking at the church and he's saying, you guys have some poor judgment going on. In chapter 5, we see the poor judgment is that there is one who is open, walking in habitual, intentional, flagrant sin. And where you should go to the brother and confront him and call him to repent, and if not, to expel him from the church. Instead, you walk around and you laugh and you act like it's no big deal. But in chapter 5, now he's dealing with another issue of judgment. Let's look at verse 1. It says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? He's saying, I I've heard that you all in the church are taking each other to court to settle disputes. Saying that's poor judgment. That's a lack of judgment. And the reason why Paul is getting on the church of Corinth about the way they handle disputes is because when one, number one, because when one goes to the law, um, they are, are normally going out of self-interest and because they want to extract something from the law, such as money. They are going out of selfishness and out of a, 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 a need and a desire to, to receive something or to rip something away from someone else. That is, that is anti-cross. That is anti-cross. For us to be self-interest focused is not the message of the gospel. But the gospel message is for us to be other person focused. And God focused. And Paul is saying, when there is beef between you two, between two Christians, you go to court in order to embarrass each other, in order to shame each other, in order to take from each other. He says, that's worldly. Now, I'm sure all of us have, have thought about it and daydreamed before about winning some big lawsuit in order for our lives to be made better, right? Have you ever daydreamed about that? 
Or have you ever been wronged in a small way? You're thinking, maybe I could take this company to court. Maybe this is my ticket out of the middle class or out of poverty. Maybe, maybe this, is, this is the way. I, or, or if you get in a car accident, right? Right away, we, we, man, let me see. Do I have whiplash, right? Because we, we're seeking to get rich. We're seeking to get wealthy because we believe that that is what's going to satisfy us. We believe that being right and being proven right and getting back at other people is what's going to give us joy. But Jesus in the cross tells us that that's not the case. Christians, we shouldn't live in a culture of revenge. We should live amongst ourselves in a culture of repentance, a culture of grace, and a culture of forgiveness. The church has been called to be a a different culture, a different people, a different sect than the sect of the world. But oftentimes we find ourselves like these Corinthians. Instead of being marked by grace and forgiveness, we're marked by self-interest and revenge. Now, I'm not saying that Christians should never go to court. I'm not saying that we should never, there's never a circumstance where we uh, have to get the courts involved in between two disputes. But I'm saying that we need to do so slowly and wisely when there is no other choice but to do so. There's a church um, that was a pretty popular church that's in trouble, legal trouble now because they sought to uh, handle sexual abuse from within the church. And they handled the cases, and years later it came back to bite them because someone said, hey, I was molested by this person in the church. And rather than the church take, take it to the highest court and to the law, they sought to take care of it themselves. And in situations of sexual abuse and, and situations where there are, is maybe physical abuse and situations where, where things like that are, are, are happening, the church needs to be wise and we need to report it. But there are other disputes and other things that should never reach the courts because we as the people of God know how to handle them. So here's the question, how do we respond when we are wronged and think we have a right to litigation? How should we respond to each other as Christians when we have been wronged, when when things have, have broken apart between us? Should we run to the court, or is there another way? Paul shows us three things in these three verses that that should happen when Christians are wrong. He wants to set the record straight, and he shows three things that should happen. And the first thing he says is that we need to deal with our disputes in-house. As Christians, when there is drama and and big disputes, he says we need to deal with them in-house. Most things need to be dealt with in-house. Look at the text. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare, look at that word, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of to the saints? And I don't want to play uh, ping pong with your eyes, so I just want you to listen to this theme in these eight verses. He says it, in a number of different ways in order to get his point across. 
And Paul, when he writes this, he is writing in passion and even with some some anger towards the church of Corinth. As we look at this text, he asks rhetorical questions over eight times. He questions them one after another, one after another, one after another, as a prosecutor would question a defendant. In order to get the church of Corinth to see that you guys are thinking in such a worldly manner. So the first question he says is, would you, do you dare take, do you dare take your cases, your drama before the unrighteous? That word unrighteous means those who have not been declared righteous by Jesus. Those who are outside of the faith, those who are not citizens of the kingdom of God, those who are not saved. Do you dare take your beef before people who don't know Jesus, before these crooked judges, before this crooked system? Do you dare do that? Then he asks it some other ways. He asks his questions other ways. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And he continues on in verse number four. He says, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Verse six, but brother goes to law against brother and before unbelievers. He continues to emphasize that something else should be done and it should be done in-house and, he, and he's shocked that they would seek to handle it out of house and take these matters before unbelievers. Why? Why does he tell them to handle it in-house? Because when they take their matters before unbelievers, it kills their witness. It kills their witness. Paul said, you're supposed to be reaching Corinth. You're supposed to be reaching the culture. You're supposed to be missional and evangelistic. But how are they going to want to know Jesus if you are taking your dirty linen and laundry before them? How, what, what about that is going to make them want to know Jesus? One commentator says this, Paul's point is not that the church should hide its dirty laundry from the eyes of outsiders, but that they should grasp the opportunity to demonstrate the power of grace to non-believers by resolving such disputes themselves. Unless it is missionary, the church is untrue to the self, to itself. The world needs to see grace at work. We don't take our dirty laundry to, to the world And allow the world to see our disputes and our disagreements because God has called us to be missionaries to the world. And we're not just simply hiding it out of out of just for the sake of hiding. We're hiding it or we're not showing it because we want to show them a better way. We want to show them the way of grace and the way of forgiveness. We're not just simply hiding it, but we're we're showing an alternative route. We don't just not take our, our cases to the court, but we, we not only not take our cases before the court, but we handle it inside in a way that shows the world we can handle our own mess. And we can do it in a way that, that, that allows us to love each other and to forgive each other. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. 
Paul says this, do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent. Do everything without grumbling, without questioning, that you may be innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked world. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding on to the word of life. We, we shouldn't be grumbling going rally for rally and tit for tat, he says. Because God has called you to be lights unto the world, salt to the world, city set upon a hill. But he says we need to, we do this by holding on to the word of life. See, when we seek to sue someone, or if we seek to take another Christian to court, it is because we are not holding on to the word of life. We are holding on instead to our own rights, to our reputation, and to our dreams of getting ahead. And that's not what the cross teaches us to do. But not only just when we take things before the course, this, this comes home in a, in, a, in, a, in a very practical way. There's a, another court, the court of human opinion. There's your own court, your, your, your co-workers, your family. We, as Christians, should be very careful how we talk about matters of the church in front of people who don't know Jesus or people who are lukewarm, who say they know Jesus but live any kind of way. How in the world is your unsaved grandchild, is your unsaved sister, is your unsaved brother, your unsaved friend going to come to know Jesus if you're always downing the church and downing other Christians. Why in the world would I follow a Jesus whose children hate each other? Augustine says, listen, the church may be a harlot, but she's my mother. In other words, I'm going to watch what I have to say about her, and you need to watch your mouth too. Now, we know we don't let people talk about our mothers, right? She's my mother in that she gave birth to me by sharing the gospel of Jesus with me. Christians, know the heart of God. When we get on social media and blast another Christian, how is that helping your unsaved friends on social media? Christian, know the heart of God. If you, a Christian, cannot get along with your sister who's a Christian, and y'all are beefing at family, uh, uh, family meetings and uh, doing holidays, how is that going to encourage someone in your family who doesn't know Jesus? You can talk about them, oh, this person sleeping around with this person, or this person's a homosexual, and we need, we need to talk to them in our family because they need Jesus. But at the same time, at the same time, you, you're not modeling love. You're not modeling Jesus. You're not being evangelistic. They know you don't get along with your sibling, and both of y'all in church on Sunday, singing praises through the week, but can't stand each other. 
Paul says, listen, we need to deal with our disputes in-house amongst each other and not deal with it in a public way. Second, he says we deal with them by appealing to the wisdom of other Christians. We deal with them by appealing to the wisdom of other Christians. So not only do we want to be careful about how we talk about the things of God before the world, but we want to appeal to the wisdom of other Christians. Look at what Paul says in verse number two. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So, so Paul is saying, when there is a beef between Christians, we need to not only handle it in-house, in but we need to go to, to those who have wisdom. Because as a church, God has given us the wisdom to deal with those things. And Paul points the church at this point to the end times. He points to eschatology. He says, one day, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, you're going to judge the world and you're going to judge angels. And Paul is probably referring back to Daniel chapter 7 when Daniel the prophet has a vision and he, he, he tells this vision that he's had that there are, are those who was with the king and, and those who were with the king was, was sitting on thrones and they were judging the world. One day when Jesus comes back, I don't know exactly how it's going to work, but Christians, we are going to judge those who are unrighteous with Jesus. And maybe this is going to come as a result of us being in, in union with Christ. And when Jesus judges the world, we will be participating in that judgment of the world because we're connected to him and we're his body. But he's saying, if you one day are going to judge the world and angels, so one day we're going to stand with Jesus and we're going to cast judgment on angels. If you one day going to do that, how in the world can you not judge trivial cases? These petty cases. God has given us, the church, an incredible gift of wisdom. And as believers, we don't run out of the church to the public square, to those who don't know Jesus, to speak into the affairs of the church. We run to the people of God, expecting that God has given someone and given us as the church wisdom on how to deal with matters. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 18, Jesus lays out how. He lays out how we are to handle disputes. And in short, he tells us, he says, if you have an ought against your brother, you go to your brother one-on-one. -on -one. There's a dispute between you two. You, he says, you go to your brother. You don't go to Nuke Nuke and Bay Bay. Right? You don't go tell the whole world. You say, he says, you go to him yourself. And if you can't work it out, he says, then you go and you get two or three other witnesses. So he says you get a small group of people and you don't make it a big church matter because everybody doesn't need to know what's going on right now. Y'all just handle it and squash it and move on. But he says if those two or three people can't handle it, he says you take it before the church. In other words, it becomes a church issue in which the people of God get to 
speak into the situation and say, this is what we should do as the body of Christ. So God has given us what we need to handle our disputes, to handle our situations. We don't have to go to worldly litigation. We can do it in-house, Paul says. We, as the body of Christ, we need to believe that we have access to a special, supernatural wisdom. Every believer, if you're here today, you have access to the mind of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that there's two types of people. There are those who are the natural type of person. That is the person who doesn't know Jesus, whose heart has not been changed by the good news of Jesus. And then he says there is the spiritual person, the person who has been born from above, whom God has come and who he has saved And he says the person who is the spiritual person, now they are able to understand the mind of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, which we receive upon salvation, is in connection with God the Father. And when we are in need of wisdom, that Holy Spirit, we have a seed inside of us of the Spirit, and we have a capability of knowing what God would have us to do. We have an incredible amount of wisdom available to us as the people of God. An incredible amount of wisdom. We don't have to handle our beefs and our pains and our disappointments and our issues with each other in a worldly way got the Holy Spirit, he says. Bible says that this is an amazing type of wisdom. In James chapter 3, Paul compares the wisdom of this world to the wisdom of God. The wisdom of this world to the wisdom of God. He said that the wisdom of this world is centered on, je- is centered on jealousy and selfish ambition. The wisdom of this world is all about boasting and showing off. Says the wisdom of this world is unspiritual and he even calls it demonic. But he says the wisdom that is from above is pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits. It is impartial and it is sincere. Impartial means that it doesn't look at two people and decide that it's going to make a decision based upon who has more money or who has more education or who this person is related to. It's impartial means that it's not looking to show favoritism to one person, but it is looking to see what is right and what lines up with the will of God. He says, the church, you have access to that type of wisdom, a wisdom that brings peace, a wisdom that reconciles, a wisdom that brings joy, a wisdom that restores, a wisdom that is early, otherworldly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says to the church of Corinth, he says, listen, you all are living as mere humans. I love that statement. I would have been like, we're human, Paul. He's like, no, you're not. He says, you're not mere humans. You have been entrusted And you have been given something powerful in this earthen vessel. 
So we ought to, we ought to know that God's wisdom is amazing. And when we know God's wisdom is amazing, when disputes and trouble come up, we run to the word and not to the world. We don't run back to our flesh and our old way of handling things, but rather we run to God's word and we, we depend on Jesus and we say, Jesus, help me, I need wisdom. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible, James chapter 1, verse 5, God says, I'll give you wisdom. In fact, not only will I give you wisdom, I'll give it to you freely and I'll give it to you without an attitude. He says, if you come to me in faith and you say, God, I need your wisdom, he says, I'll give it to you in abundance. The, the same wisdom that Solomon had, he says, I'll give it to you, the church. When we seek wisdom, what are we seeking? What are we seeking? We're seeking Jesus. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 calls Jesus the wisdom and knowledge of God. So when the church comes together to settle a dispute, we're not just thinking on our own mind and our own philosophy saying, well, I think that this is the way that this should work. No, we're saying, no, what does God's word say? There's a popular preacher my wife was listening to recently. And uh, I came home and, or, or came to where we were staying, uh, and she said, uh, Tweety, you won't believe the advice I just heard from this preacher. He was preaching on marriage. And he said, and he gave advice to women, he says, if your husband is not living the way he should live, and is kind of running around on you and staying out on you and, and mistreating you, this is the way you ought to do it as a Christian. You ought to just do the same thing he's doing to you. Whatever he's doing to you, you do to him. And sooner or later, he'll get the point. That's foolishness. That's the world system. That's the world's way. That's not the Bible's way. That's not Jesus' way. Jesus' way is radically different. 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, no, the way you win your husband is by looking more like Jesus and less like yourself. And be patient and wait. And that goes for husbands as well. You're going tit for tat with your wife, and both of you are Christians, and then you take your drama to your unsaved loved ones, and now you got unsaved people speaking into your marriage and they're causing you to go down and causing you to die. Paul is saying, wake up. But see, we like to do things on the world's standard rather than God's way and on God's standard. Touch your neighbor and say, it's not going to work. It's not. That's not how God gets it. That's not how he works. Paul said God takes the foolish things of this world and he confounds the wild. You say, well, I don't see how that makes sense. Not going tick for tack. That's all I know. I was born that way ever since I was little. That's all I did. You hit me, I'm hitting you back. Eye for eye, two for two. Paul says, but that's not how God works. He works a different way. And it seems like foolishness to the world. It seems stupid. It seems irrational. But he said it's the very power of God. We have been given a wisdom that is unbelievable, a wisdom that is amazing, a wisdom that is rich, a wisdom that Satan is envious of and wants to keep you from. 
a wisdom that your lost loved ones need to see in action and not just in word. Paul says, I didn't come with mere words, but I came with a demonstration of power. In other words, he's saying, I'm not just telling you something that I think, I'm telling you something I know, something that God used to transform other people. I was subject to courts, Paul says. I was whipped three times, Paul says. I was imprisoned by Festus, by Festus, because he wanted money from me. I know how the world works. And I'm telling you, nothing beats, nothing beats the body of Christ's wisdom. Do you believe that? The Christian was to do you wrong. If y'all was to get into a business venture and you were to lose a lot of money, would you be quick to run to the courts and to handle it, to get your money back? Or would you say, you know what? This is a church matter. They're a Christian here. I'm a Christian here. I need to talk to their pastor, talk to my pastor, and we need to work something out. So, looking forward to a starting community group soon. Small groups where we would come together for Bible study and prayer. And one of the reasons I'm really looking forward to it is because I think that we are going to see the wisdom of God play out practically week by week as we take our troubles and our disputes before other Christians and say, help me to think through this. See, there's a misnomer that the, the person who, uh, people who have uh, uh, the most wisdom in a congregation is the people who are, are leading or who are above. But the Bible says every Christian has access to the same wisdom. This week I had the joy of meeting with about eight individuals in one week and walking and working through some very difficult situations, about eight counseling sessions this week, in which I walked through with members of our church and some who were not members of our church through difficult situations. And I love doing it. It's one of my favorite things to do as a pastor. But I'll be honest, I do too much of that. And, and part of the reason why is because I believe that we as a people, as the church, we're not tapping into each other. And before things go, go up necessarily to, to leaders, they, they can be called and, and ministered to by each other. Paul says in Romans chapter 15, uh, verse 14, he said, I am satisfied with you, church, that you are able to counsel one another with all knowledge and goodness. And we have so much wisdom here, so many people in this congregation who have encouraged me and, and, and counseled me, some godly older men who have counseled me through life situations. And I'm saying that's, that's how it should be regularly, weekly, daily. But we've got we've to believe that that's how God wants it to operate. We've got to invest in each other. Notice Paul says that you don't, says, you don't necessarily come to me. He says, is there anyone among you who is able to do this? In other words, he's pointing them to each other. You all have got some life situations. You all have got some life experiences that people need to hear about. Don't be afraid. Open your mouths. Raise your head. Speak as a daughter of God from God's word and from the experiences that God has redeemed in your life and trust the Lord.
finally. Paul says, how do we handle disputes? Number one, by dealing with disputes in-house. Number two, by appealing to the wisdom of other Christians. And third and final, by being willing to suffer wrong. By being willing to suffer wrong. Put your Bibles. Verse 6 says, But brother goes to law against brother and before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your brothers. Paul is saying, even if you didn't go to the church to get wisdom, you should have just not followed through with the case. He said, because just filing a lawsuit against another Christian has already killed the witness of Jesus before the world. He says, why not just say, you know what? I'll take a loss for this $2,000. Why don't we, as Christians, suffer wrong? Let me give you a couple reasons why I think we are quick to get retaliation and revenge and to not run to the people of God, but to run to whoever is available and who will listen to us. One, because we don't suffer, uh, one, we don't suffer wrong because of our ego. It's hard for us to be wronged and to just leave it at that and suffer it because of our E-G-O, our ego, ego. We edge God out. We think too highly of ourselves and have too much pride to let someone else make us look bad. We get this attitude that says, you don't know who I am. There's a pride there that is undergirded really by a deep insecurity. Because what we think is, we think that if we let someone get away with this crime against us, then it somehow is going to diminish us. And we're insecure because we believe that if we allow them to get away with this, then what they think about us and what other people think about us is true. But we've got to remind ourselves that regardless of what someone gets away with and regardless of what someone is saying about us and what we believe about ourselves, that God has said something about us. And that what we believe about ourselves and what someone else is saying about us is not what God says about us. The world says if you don't stand up for yourself and get revenge, you're a punk. And then if you don't go after that person, you feel yourself, you know what, I'm a punk. That's not what God says. God says, you're my child. You're my beloved. I sing over you. God says, I'm pleased with you that you're not doing it the world's way. God says, your identity is not found in you getting payback. Your identity is found in what I carried on my back. So you don't have to take that person to the public court, and you don't have to take them to the woodshed, and you don't have to worry about someone ruining your reputation when you are content in what God says about you. 
and when you are trusting the word and the cross of Jesus and not your own human philosophy. But our ego keeps us from suffering wrong. And in Corinth, their ego was keeping them from suffering wrong. They were like, I'm suing. I'm suing. Number two, another reason why we don't suffer wrong is because we don't like people getting away with anything. Not only is it just our ego, but we just don't like people getting away with things. We have a voracious craving for justice. We say, how can I let them get away with this? Someone needs to stop them. Someone needs to teach them a lesson. And I believe God has called me to do it by suing them or by talking about them or by trying to tear them down to everyone else. This is my ministry that the Lord has given me, right? So we don't suffer wrong because we, we don't like people getting away with things. And here's the irony. The same ones who crave for seeing justice done to others depend on God's mercy daily. I mean, are we justified? Are we justified for seeking revenge so quickly while receiving God's mercy daily? Third, we don't believe God when he says vengeance is mine and he will repay. The reason we don't suffer wrong is because of our ego because we don't like seeing people receive mercy. But it's also because, quite frankly, we don't believe that God is a just God and that he will right all of our wrongs. In Romans chapter 12, we read these words. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Being missionary. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. And we like, sometimes we read that and we think, yeah, they're going to burn. That's not what it's saying. That was an analogy that meant that they, their conscience will be melted. You will win your brother over. By loving them, not by going evil for evil with them. So it was like, well, I'm just going to love them. And it's going to be like heaping coals on their head. And we got this picture of like coal burning and them getting jealous and mad. That undercuts the whole point of what's being taught. Do not overcome uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
That's exactly what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him take your cloak as well. If anyone is going to force you to go one mile, go two miles with them. And this is tough. In day-to-day life, with our flesh, with our ego, with our desire to see justice, this is tough to do. But it can be done when we look to Jesus by faith and when we depend on him daily. And it's why, as Minister Nate preached, Pastor Nate preached last week, this is why we need to go somewhere and sit down at the feet of Jesus. Oftentimes we, we just go tally for tally because we don't take the time to sit down at the feet of Jesus as desperate sinners who are saved by grace, who need his wisdom. Instead, we're running around. I can't believe this just happened. Can you believe what just happened? You don't know, back in the day, I'd be getting my Vaseline. Yo, you don't know me like that. What? What? If God hadn't saved me, boy, I'd throat chop you. Then we get on the phone, we'll call off, can you believe? And we have failed, we have failed to take a bad moment and see Jesus redeemed. We just sit at the feet of Jesus. We can see God work. We can respond differently. And others can be saved. quick motivation to suffer wrong. There's many reasons why we should suffer wrong, but here's something quick. When we suffer wrong, we get to follow in Jesus' footsteps. Jesus was defrauded for you. Jesus, though perfect, suffered injustice for you. Jesus didn't just go One extra mile, he went 10 million extra miles when he went to Golgotha's hill. And it was Jesus' kindness and prayers for you that led to your repentance. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 25, please go ahead and read it. That's exactly what, go home and read it. That's exactly what, what Peter told the church. He says, when you suffer wrongly, you suffer In the example of Jesus, you follow in his footsteps. Go home and study that passage. He says, Christians suffer well like Jesus suffered well. Second, you get to minister to the person that is taken advantage of. When we give mercy... We don't seek to go to the secular courts and sue somebody and get everything we can get. It shows our selfishness and our belief that money or being right is going to solve our heart. When we instead humble ourselves and say, I'm going to suffer wrongly and I'm going to love you, that person who did us wrong, they get to experience grace. They get to experience mercy. God can use you to teach your enemies that some things are bigger than money 
and petty victories. People need to learn that this lesson from God, and God can use you to teach it. So we get ready uh, to close. I want to, just a second, we're going to play a, a video of uh, where this is played out. This was played out in real life. Circumstances was a, di- a little different, but the principle was there. Dear Christian, don't handle your situations the way the world handles it. Handle it the way the word handles it. 